0: Matthew chapter 5 verses 43 to 48 and uh, this is the um, final section of the Sermon on the Mount so we conclude the Sermon on the Mount this evening Um, I do apologize I've got my ESV up here I don't know where the NIV is so um, we're reading Matthew 5 verses 43 to 48 you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. And may God bless this reading of his word. Well, I've already welcomed you, so I don't need to do that tonight for a change. But uh, thank you for joining us. It's great to have you here. And uh, I hope you've enjoyed worshipping God through music and song this evening. We're so privileged to have people gifted and talented Um, in that way and able to lead us in that way Uh, I trust that as you come you want to hear more from God as we bring the word now in the mid-19th century there was a Spanish prime minister called Raymond Navas on his deathbed a priest was called and the priest came to him and said would you forgive your enemies and Raymond said I have no need to I've had them all shot I hope when I speak to you this evening, I'm speaking to the vast majority when I assume you do not shoot your enemies. But I think we have a habit of shooting the wounded. I think we have a habit of having this action and reaction to certain things which cut people down anyway. We live in a fallen world, a world full of people who are made in the very image of God but they're sinners just like us. And I think so often we forget it's the wounded who need the doctor. And we make our judgments, we cast out, and we lock the door forgetting we were once where those people were. We see people as being without hope. We believe no one and nothing can help them. and so as we make our self-righteous judgments again we forget we were once lost too and we are here now as believers only because we saw our need for a saviour we couldn't do anything for ourselves just like they can't do anything for themselves there is a constant call throughout scripture Old Testament and New Testament alike and that constant call is to remember remember what God has done for you and I think for each of us that's something that we should keep first and foremost in our minds what is it that what God has done for us when I became to faith what was it that God has done how did he encounter me what transformation did that make in my life then we need to be thankful that God did that for me and we need to pray that he'll do it for others we need to remember And we should ask God to open our eyes that without Christ we were no different to those people that we so frequently judge. Most non-Christian people that you speak to or that you encounter are aware of Jesus saying that his followers should love their enemies. They won't know where it is in the Bible, but they'll be able to quote that to you. It's been quoted to me many times. They will say something along the lines of, aren't you supposed to love your enemies? Regardless of what is said or done. And their reason and motivation in saying such things is because of the way that they've seen some people who attend church live out their lives, the way some people who attend church have interacted with them is far from expressing and showing love. So we fall short of their expectations. And so tonight, as we move through this passage of Scripture, is my hope and desire that, again, we get a bit of a wake-up call, that a bit of a slap up the side of the head, perhaps, where we realize we don't get it right all the time. I don't get it right all the time. And we need to reassess our lives before Christ. We need to listen to what Jesus is saying. And we need to have that willingness to put into action what we're called to here. If we do, it will change this community first and foremost. It will change how we are as a people of God. And not only will it change this community, it will change the community around us. And if we keep going, if we keep loving our enemies, it could change the world. Let's pray. Father God, you're a good God. And Lord, you never ask us or teach us or command us to do something which is going to hurt us but Lord your words hard sometimes and Lord it challenges us to do things we don't want to do and so Lord as we move through this this evening I again pray for Holy Spirit to speak to us I pray you will be real to us in the midst of what we're doing here Lord that we'll hear your voice that we'll respond to you Lord that we'll want to know you more but Lord, more than anything, that we'll obey you and do what you call us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Jesus is, is continuing to correct the false interpretation that the Jewish leaders were making along, uh, about a lot of the Old Testament. And so this evening, we're going to be looking at another one of those matters. And it's the one about loving your neighbor. What we find here, uh, which should be shocked at each one of us uh, when we read scripture, is that religious leaders were again exploiting what they thought was a gray area in loving your neighbor. Matthew 5.43 says, You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And Jesus is addressing what could be considered one of the central truths in the Old Testament. And it's this call to love your neighbor. In Leviticus 19.18, God commands his people to not seek revenge or bear grudges against the sons of your people. And to love your neighbor as yourself. The problem was, the Jewish leaders said, well, who is my neighbor? They debated this and they wondered who it was and so they questioned, is my neighbor just the person next door? Is my neighbor the person who's down the road a little bit? Is my neighbor the person who is actually across town? Is it the people who are in this city or is it the nation? Who is it? And so they decided, obviously without consulting God, that they were going to define who neighbor was. And they decided... The neighbour was someone who was close to you. If you were outside my immediate circle of friends or those people I came into contact with, well, then I could treat you indifferently. That was okay. But then if you were part of that mass who was outside of that, if you were outside of that section, you know, I've got my immediate friends and then I've got the people who are just outside that. Well, if you were outside that circle, well, then you were not my neighbours. And so, because you're not my neighbors, I'm actually free to hate you. And so if these people were not my neighbors, I were seen as my enemies. And for many, in its most basic terms, we see the Jews more and more saw themselves, other Jews, as neighbors, and anyone else, Gentiles, were enemies. The 12th century Jewish philosopher, Maimonides wrote a Mishnah Torah, which was intended to be a summary of all Jewish law. And so he wrote this, and it's so obvious when you read some of the things in this book, that hatred for the Gentiles was greatly apparent. He actually wrote, as for the Gentiles with whom you have no war, and likewise the shepherds of small cattle and others of that sort, they do not so plot their death. But it is forbidden them to deliver them from death if they are in danger of it. For instance, a Jew sees one of them fallen into the sea. Let him by no means lift him up out. For it is written, thou shalt not rise up against the blood of thy neighbor, but this is not your neighbor. So what they're saying is, if they were to see a Gentile drowning, man, woman, child, didn't matter, they'd just look on. They wouldn't raise a hand to help because this guy this child, this woman, is not their neighbor. And this attitude of the Jews against the Gentiles was actually noted by the Romans. And there are a number of Roman writers who mentioned this. Tacitus and Juvenal were both ones who mentioned this. They noted and believed that it was essential to be part of the Jewish religious community to hate all non Jews. That was their observance when they looked upon the Jewish nation. It was part, they believed it was part of being a Jew. But Jesus refutes this belief. He says, love your enemies. And so Jesus takes these conflicting attitudes of loving your neighbor and hating your enemy and he brings them together in a way that will shock those who are listening. This always was and always will be God's intention from the very beginning of time. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We need to understand that God hates evil, but he loves all of humanity. His desire is that not one be lost. It's very clear in scripture. His desire is that all will come into a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus says you are to love your enemies. Now this is not the same kind of love that you would have for your spouse, that you would have for your children, that you would have for family members. When we talk about that love, it's a love that you can't really help. There's a connection with them that's tied up in your emotions. I couldn't help but love my wife. Uh, When I met her I just thought she was gorgeous. I still think she's gorgeous and sucked into all you guys who aren't married to my wife because I think she's the most beautiful woman in the world. But there's this connection, there's this, this emotion that's caught up in that. Even when I love my kids, like, I, I can't explain it. It's, it there's, they're my kids, and, and, and I just love them. And, and there is an emotion involved in that. And God never expects us, expects us to love our enemies in the same way. He doesn't expect us to love our enemies like we love our family. To love our enemies takes an act of will. And so we're told God says to agape your enemies. It's not a love about emotion. It's it's a mindset. It's a choice. It's deciding I am going to do this. It's an act of will. And it was directed and active Benevolence, it was an attitude that said, I will do the best for this other person. And I will do the best for this other person, whether they're a friend or a foe. It makes no difference. That is agape love. It's a call to deal with everyone, as if I like them. I will seek their highest good. Not because I feel like it, but because... I've made that commitment and it's an attitude of mind. With all other love I feel and then I act. With agape love I act without feeling. Feelings may come but that's not the point. I must love my enemy. It's a command and so I must choose to do it. And it's when we act with the other's best interest in mind That we reflect the very attitude of Jesus and we are called to be sons of the father that doesn't excuse the females here it's sons or daughters of the father and so we love our enemies in order to show them God's love and it's when we do this that men and women quite simply will be drawn to God It says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. When we give our life to Jesus Christ, when we call him our Lord and Savior, when we submit to him and accept that he died in our place for our sins on the cross, we are adopted into his family And part of being adopted into his family, part of accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour, is that we become followers, and as followers of Christ, we are supposed to reflect who Jesus is. Think about the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I've possibly said this many times. When we say, hallowed be your name, we are first and foremost saying, Lord, your name is safe on my lips. Your name is just so elevated, so powerful I will not use it in any other way than what honors and glorifies you but also when we think about that hallowed be your name names were very important in biblical times and when we take on God's name when we take on the name of another then all we do all we conduct ourselves with is to bring honor and glory to that person and so when we become sons and daughters of the most high God our actions are supposed to honor and glorify God because we are sons and daughters of God names are important all I do every action I should ensure doesn't bring shame to God we are to reflect Jesus we are to live in such a way that others will see him in us and one of the most outstanding attributes of Jesus incredibly it got him into trouble so frequently was the way that he treated his friends and the way that he treated his enemies and so many times he treated them exactly the same and it got him into trouble the sun shines on the evil and the good the rain falls on the evil and the good wouldn't it be awesome if? We could throw people in our car, take them for a drive out into the country and say, Christian, 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 because they're the ones that had all the lush green fields. Evil, 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 because they're the dead fields. But that's not the way God works. He pours his blessing out on all. Why does he pour his blessing out on all? Because he wants them to acknowledge God's goodness. He wants them to realize that he just pours his love and blessing out on all. He wants them to know Jesus Christ died for each and every one. And so the sun rises on all people. Rain falls on all people. God blesses friends and families. Uh, sorry, friends and enemies alike. Unfortunately. The scribes and the Pharisees, instead of obeying God's word, looked for ways to avoid doing this. They loved only the Jews. And Jesus says, how are you different to the rest of the world? Even the Gentiles greet those that they love. And when you think about it, in the Middle East, uh, a greeting in the Middle East was actually very different. You know, we walk past someone in the street and say, day, it doesn't really mean too much. Uh, You might say hello to someone, and again, it doesn't really mean too much, but in the Middle East, when you greeted someone, you were actually blessing them. Uh, uh, If you were to greet them correctly, you would not only bless them, you would bless them, and you would bless their wife, and as you continued to greet, you'd bless their children, and you'd actually bless their children's children. And so that was how a greeting was done. That's how you would say hi to people. And Jesus calls his followers uh, um, to to be different. And he speaks about greeting others. He says that really your greetings and your blessings should start when the world stops. When there are those people that aren't very nice, those people who aren't very lovable, that's where a Christian's greetings and blessings should actually start. We should desire to pour God's love into the lives of those who know love nowhere else. We're called to bless those we don't even like. That's what this is all about. And why should we? Jesus tells us to. It's really that simple. But we do it because in loving like this, we are demonstrating the love that God first poured into us. I don't know about you, but when I came to faith, God just poured his love out on me. when I, I didn't even acknowledge him. I didn't even want to know Him. And when, when I finally came to faith, when I got serious about the Lord, I, I could look back over the years and I could see His hand directing people to speak into my life. I could see encounters that were obviously God. And so I know He loved me, even though in a way I hated Him. I was really an enemy of God. I wanted nothing to do with Him. I wanted to live my own life and do my own thing. And yet he pursued me, and he poured his love into me. He loved me when my sin was the greatest. It's because of his love to me that I was drawn to him. And he says, take that love, the agape, the love that I first showed you, and you love like that. Love others like I loved you. And we love God because he first loved us. We love because God calls us to. We love because it shows God love to the lost. When we do, people will see us loving those who do not love us. They see us seeking the best for them. They see us helping them. They see us providing for those who have made themselves our enemies. And in that time, they see something otherworldly. They see something that is God-like. And in the middle of this... We're called to be perfect. The Sermon on the Mount concludes with this call. And this verse is discussed frequently, and it seems that it is a command which cannot possibly be realized or achieved by us. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the word that is used here for perfect is teleos, It is a word which is misunderstood and misinterpreted. And when we think about the Old Testament sacrifices, a lamb, sheep or goat that was brought to be sacrificed uh, was without blemish and it was considered to be teleos. It was perfect. A man who has grown to full maturity is considered teleos. A student who has reached a mature knowledge or understanding of the subject that he is studying is considered to be teleos. He is perfect. And so in the context of this passage, the perfection or teleos that Jesus is calling his followers to is to fulfill the call and purpose on our lives. It's about being all we can be, fulfilling what we were designed to do. Each and every one of us has been created for a reason. And I want to encourage you, each and every one of you have been put into this community at this time for a purpose. You have gifts, talents, and abilities that I do not have. And you're called to use them. There's a view and expectation that we use those to fulfill the purpose that God has for us. And what is the overarching reason for all of us in being created? And it goes right the way back to the Garden of Eden. God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them. Male and female, he created them. And our lives are to be this constant pursuit of being like God. We are created in his image. And the expectation is that we will be like God. And on this verse, you might think I'm stretching that a little bit, so let's look at Ephesians. Oops. I've left one out sorry Ephesians 4 24 says and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness the new self created in the likeness of God when we think about the Garden of Eden Adam and Eve were created perfect they were primarily spiritual beings they walked with God in the garden They encountered God face to face. They lived in his presence and glory. And then they sinned. And in that fallen nature, there was an ontological inversion. And so we became primarily physical. And so our natural man pursues the things of the earth. And then when we give our life to Jesus again, when we recognise our need of him as our Lord and Saviour, that inversion goes back and we become primarily spiritual again. Our focus should be on things that are eternal. Our focus should be on the things that are heavenly, not on the things of this world. And so when we give our life to Jesus, everything changes, everything shifts. This is the new self. And I want you to realize the new life that you rise to, the power you were given, is the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. He overcame sin and death and rose to life and when you rise to new life in the Lord Jesus Christ it is the same power the same Holy Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is that the power that you can use to overcome sin yeah and when you think about what you're called to do in life it is incredibly difficult to do what this is calling us to but is the power that rose Jesus from the dead enough to do that if you depend on Jesus and ask him to equip and empower you to live like this do you believe he can do that because I do It's the power that rose Jesus from the dead. It's an incredible thing. We're called to put on this new self. This is talking about that new birth we have in Jesus. And it's to be this daily transformation to the very image of Jesus Christ. And I know when you first come to faith, you know, your faith is this big. And God does not expect you to go out and run an evangelical event to 20 million people or a million people or even a thousand people. He gives you this portion of faith and he says, take that and use it. There's many examples in scripture about that. Think of the guys with the gifts. One was given one, one was given five, one was given 10. We use what we're given to the extent of our faith. And when we do... We're given more. And God blesses, encourages, equips, and strengthens. And and he'll do great things with you if you just submit to him. Jesus is the ultimate example for his disciples to follow. And when we're called to be perfect, just as God is perfect, it is Jesus that we should be looking at. Jesus is God never discriminated in showing his love to others. We show ourselves to be like God when we love in the same way. It's a love that always forgives, always sacrifices, never runs dry. It's a love that we cannot possibly give unless we've encountered Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes, And the first thing Jesus said was, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the poor in spirit are those who've sincerely repented, who are totally convinced of the destructive power of sin. They understand the natural state of humanity and see their only hope of being saved is in the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder how often we revisit verses like John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Likewise, Romans 5, eight. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. These two verses are often quoted and used in Christian circles, but uh, I, I think they've lost their impact. We live in a world where more and more those who acknowledge God say he's distant, he's uninvolved, he isn't really interested in what's going on here. And if you think about the two verses that I've just read out, it clearly shows that he gave his son. He so loved us that Jesus gave his life. God and Jesus gave of themselves in order that we may benefit. We didn't love them first. We didn't even acknowledge them. I didn't anyway. We're quite literally enemies of God. I wonder how often we go to the cross. Standing on Golgotha is three crosses. On the left and on the right are two thieves. In the middle is this man, Jesus. Above his head is a plaque with his crime, the King of the Jews. This man is unrecognizable. He's been beaten beyond the capacity any human being can endure. All men are naked. Jesus endured that beating because no one could take his life from him. He lived perfectly and he knew the time when he would give up his spirit. He would lay down his life at that correct time. He was born in order to die and no one was going to change that appointed time. People are making fun of Jesus, they're mocking him, it's the soldiers, it's the passers-by, it's the rulers, the synagogue, it's the scribes and all sorts of people. They're saying if he is really the son of God, he should just step down off the cross and then they would actually believe in him. And these two thieves, one either side, they're saying the same thing. So it's like if you are the son of God, step down, save yourself, save us also. But then something happened. One thief is hanging there, knowing he hasn't got long to go. And something happens. He knows that how he has lived has hurt so many people. And I'm assuming because of the lifestyle he lived, there's no one standing before him who are going to miss him. He's possibly very thankful that his mother doesn't know what's become of him and the type of death he's about to die because of the crimes that he's committed. And he looks upon Jesus differently for some reason. All the voices that have been shouting out and mocking Jesus are suddenly silenced as this man speaks. He initially rebukes the guy hanging on the other side who may have been his partner in crime. And he says, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly. For we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. Every voice is stilled. And they look to this thief awestruck Jesus' disciples didn't even stand up for him they'd all flee at this stage and this robber this thief on the cross has this moment of clarity he's well aware of who he is but he's suddenly very aware of who's beside him he's guilty Jesus is innocent He's deserving of death. Jesus is worthy of praise, honor, glory, and the worship of millions and millions of angels. (laughs) This thief is dying for his sin. Jesus is dying for the sin of all. And this thief somehow sees what so many couldn't. Jesus is the son of God. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I don't know what this man expected from Jesus, but Jesus knew this man's heart. This man comes bankrupt, he's got nothing, nothing at all. He can't offer Jesus himself. But what little he has left, he gives. And he receives more than he could ever hope or dream of. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Do you think about what it was like for that guy on that cross. Do you think if he was standing here today reading this command to love your enemies, do you think he'd be willing to do it? And I think we just have this habit of not obeying Jesus because we have this life which is just so good. We are blessed so abundantly. We are so privileged in this country. But friends... Those outside these walls, those who don't know Jesus, are dying and going to hell. They're your friends. They're your family. They're my friends and my family. And the only thing that is going to transform their lives is if we're obedient to Jesus and his call on us to proclaim his name to be different. To live in such a way that it impacts people like never before. Will you do it? We're called to be perfect as God is perfect. It's a daily thing. It's a matter of waking and saying, Lord, I'm here to be used for your glory and your purposes. And each and every day, we should be determined to move one step closer to God. And as we do that, he will transform us. And there's going to come a day where we stand in God's glory and presence, when we will be fully perfected. We will be like him because we'll see him like he is. And I don't know about you, but when I stand in his presence, I want a host of witnesses who would never have stepped foot inside a church if they hadn't heard about Jesus. And I was one of the ones who spoke to them about Jesus. Love your enemies. Let's pray. Father God, forgive me. It's so easy to make excuses for not loving those who hate me, who give me a hard time, who aren't very nice. And yet, you did, Jesus. And you call me to do the same. Lord, let me see your hand and understand your call on my life and let me be on my knees asking you to strengthen me, equip me and empower me each and every day to love my enemies. And Lord, I pray the same for everyone who's hearing my voice, those in this auditorium, those who are at home, Lord. Hound us, I pray. Don't relent. Stay after us, Lord, and challenge us to continually love as you loved our friends, our family, our neighbors, our enemies, exactly the same, just as you did, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.